It's wonderful to see you all this Advent season. Um, I'll be reading our scriptures uh, for this morning, starting with Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Uh, our second passage today is from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. <clears throat> and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're uh, able and inclined, please ri rise for the reading of the gospel. It's from Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The Gospel of the Lord. Hi. So 
I just want to open with a quick um, prayer and offering to the Lord. <clears throat> May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So New York City, apart from our beautiful city, of course, is one of my favorite places in the world. This was solidified when I went on a spring break trip with my campus ministry my sophomore year of college. I, along with my dear friend Olivia, was a newly declared political science major, uh, double major, along with my concentration in journalism, and I was very excited about international relations. A few of us decided to go down to Midtown Manhattan and to take a tour of the United Nations headquarters. And I was absolutely geeking out. The UN, of course, was formed after World War II as an international organization to promote peace and cooperation among nations. Now, there are a wide range of criticisms and perspectives on how the UN should operate, if it should exist, and whether its work is effective. But its mission speaks to the human heart and longings that most of us have for a world that we cannot yet see. And I, wanna, I think this is reflected in a lot of the artwork that's on display um, at the headquarters and on their grounds. The World Within a World monument outside on the grounds uh, shows a vision of a new world emerging out of what once was, this hope that was held after the Great World War. And a statue that is also present on the complex, Swords into Plowshares, um, has, is based off the Isaiah 2 passage, passage from today and was actually a gift of the Soviet Union to the UN in 1959, which is really interesting. And a wall that is across the, across the street, a part of a park, um, bears the same words of this passage. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. At some point in the tour, we visited the General Assembly Room where all the member countries meet together. I don't know what event they were about to have there, but there were some people in there rehearsing and setting up for something, and there were some musicians down at the front of the room, and they began singing this familiar hymn. I believe it was like, How Great Thou Art, or something along those lines, but what I do remember is having a visceral emotional reaction as I stood in a room where all nations come together with the hope, most of them, of creating a better world. I became very emotional as I imagined the world as it should be and as it will be. This is the heart of Advent. Over the next four weeks, we are invited to prepare our hearts for Christ's coming. But Advent has a dual posture, looking back to Christ's first coming and looking ahead to Christ's future coming. We know the source and the promise of God's peace, yet we still desperately long for this coming day of peace, like Isaiah prophesied. I want to acknowledge where we are in relation to peace this morning. Many of us are exhausted by the lack of peace all around us, and we are rattled with questions like, 
what does it mean to choose Jesus' way of peace when it leads us to places that aren't necessarily peaceful? And even with what we have been promised from God, what are we to do in the meantime before the judge settles the score, so to speak? I'm not going to pretend that there are simple answers to these questions, but I'm going to invite you to consider some possibilities. We're going to talk about three circumstances in which we are called to choose or to seek peace by God's power. We're called to choose peace in the small things, to choose peace in the big things, and to choose peace when it seems impossible. We're called to choose peace in the ordinary, mundane parts of life. Most of us don't find ourselves in positions like in the United Nations, or even if we do, our daily actions can still seem a lot less consequential. Yet, we observe calls throughout Scripture to seek peace and to pursue it. Like in the Psalm of David, Psalm 34, and as it's quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 3:11, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Partnering with God in the work of shalom and the work of peace is an everyday thing. It is made up of our normal, boring actions that we show up for in faithfulness. Even in our New Testament passages for today that seem very intense and apocalyptic, I think we see some evidence of this as well. In Romans 13, verse 11, as as Alice read for us, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. As Paul writes this letter, he is confident of a few things, and he's unsure of one. He doesn't know when this day of peace will come. Jesus is pretty clear about that in Matthew 2. But he is confident that it will come, and he is confident about what he believes that uh, the church at Rome needs to do in preparation. We need to wake up. Actually, maybe we need to be woken up. Reverend Dr. Ori McFarland describes how in this passage the verb for waking up is actually passive. He says, You are not simply waking yourself up, but are being woken up. Paul has already used this verb in reference to Christ's resurrection and the hope believers have for their own resurrection because of their baptism into Christ. In this context, sleep envisions a kind of spiritual sluggishness from from which one needs to be drawn out of to walk in newness of life. God is the one who wakes us up to God's reality. If we ask, God will draw us out of this spiritual sluggishness to put on the armor of light, to clothe ourselves with Christ, and to pay attention to God's activity in the world in the midst of our ordinary days. Similarly, the people in our gospel text are performing 
everyday necessary tasks when Jesus describes the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37 to 41. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. The church has a wide range of interpretations about the second coming of Christ. We're pretty good at disagreeing. But what we can say for sure is that the world is not as it should be. And the hope of Christ is that the world that should be is coming. Rather than just looking at this passage from the point of view of who stays and who goes, I invite you to consider this perspective from Professor Dr. Stanley Saunders, that another point of this passage may be to depict sudden surprising separation without indicating cause for judgment or reward. But the focus of this passage could be on remaining vigilant amidst the uncertainty of a long wait, amidst discouraging circumstances. Dr. Saunders goes on to conclude, this is not advice for crisis moments, but a call to perpetual normative readiness, regardless of circumstance. <clears throat> now, the last thing I want you to jump to and to hear as I talk about this is that you need to do more. We literally just started talking about Sabbath. A lot of us <laughs> need to consider doing less. Even our active participation in God's peacemaking in the world can be rooted in a spirit that is resting in God, not a spirit that of anxious hurry. Some days will be a lot more active, quote unquote, than others. We will talk about what seem like some bigger actions in a minute. But a simple example of how God has started to wake me up in this area has been on public transit. Lately, there have been a couple of times where God has nudged my heart, has prompted me to pray for a specific person. And I haven't approached any of these people. Um, and I don't know what exactly I was praying for or what the result is or will be. But what I've noticed is that when I take the time to actively pay attention, to say, maybe I won't sit on my phone on the bus ride home today. In the midst of what I'm already doing, the divine will speak. Yes, there are tasks that will arise in ways that the Holy Spirit will call us to respond actively in obedience, but first we must be awakened, awakened to the world as it is and to the world as it should be in the midst of our ordinary days. There are times when participating in God's work of shalom is more natural or reactionary, but there are also times when it must be more active. And Isaiah, in the passage for today, the prophet gives us a vision of God's shalom and plan for human flourishing. Whenever that may come to pass, we can see God's heart for peace, for reconciliation, and for justice. The ironic thing is that in our calling to participate in this, our lives will not always be peaceful. There are times when we are called to respond in faith in ways that seem 
contradictory to peace. As prophesied later in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, we claim Jesus as our Prince of Peace, but Jesus also claimed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, as he quoted Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. Just because God calls you to do something that might lead to conflict doesn't mean that it isn't grounded in God's work of peace. Just prior to the verses that we read in Romans, Paul declares that whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, and love does no harm to a neighbor. This is the bedrock of the continued declaration for the Romans to the Christians of Rome to wake up, to put aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. This is a part of our daily normative practice, yes, but it's in, re- it's in preparation to respond to principalities and to powers that we encounter in our very ordinary days. For example, just a thought, how might we respond this holiday season at the dinner table when a family member says something disparaging about a marginalized group? Or how is our community here at WCF called to usher in God's peace to our city in ways that may be countercultural or different from what we've done before? Now, I mean, you, I mean for you to use wisdom and your own knowledge of your life situations in these examples, but it's just something to consider how we might be called to say something or to respond in a way that might not necessarily lead to our peaceful relationships. Peaceful circumstances do not always equal the peace that comes from God, the fruit of God's spirit. As we pay attention and put on the armor of Christ, we can be ready to be peacemakers in the big and in the small moments of life. We can't drum up this peace or even the will to choose it on our own. We need a bigger imagination. We need God's imagination. Some of us can't even imagine what our nation could be like without gun violence. The recent prayer service that WCF supported, Plowshares and Prayers, with our friends at Christ Our Shepherd, echoed the title of our series and many other familiar laments from Scripture. How long, O Lord? Are we there yet? Yet we are still given these passages like in Isaiah 2, and we're supposed to imagine something that could be, that seems impossible. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann proposes that the way to combat this limited visibility is through something called prophetic imagination. In his book, Prophetic Imagination, he writes, the prophet engages in futuring fantasy. The prophet doesn't ask if the vision can be implemented For questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. The imagination must come before the implementation. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination to keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one, the king, 
wants to urge as the only unthinkable one. Often, we accept the norms of what our culture deems as progress or good enough. Or on the other hand, we are easily dismayed by the continued brokenness all around us that never seems to change. These are very human responses. We want to celebrate when things go well and move ahead in, in, um, toward God's justice, and we also want to lament when they don't. But embracing prophetic imagination as seen in Scripture can help us to see with Holy Spirit all that is possible and ultimately all that is promised in the renewal of our world. This is the work of God's Spirit that we see in Isaiah. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. People will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. To see the world through God's eyes is to see a place, to envision a place that was intended for shalom and for human flourishing, for God's peace. We must be taken out of our own perceptions of the world and into God's vision, into the impossible. The passage ends with the prophet imploring with God's people, come, let us walk into this vision now. Let us follow God's vision now, even before this new world comes along. Before this, back in Isaiah 1, it describes the absolute depravity that had overcome God's people and how they rebelled against their creator. It details how foreign nations plundered Jerusalem and led to absolute destruction. Isaiah 2 describes what seems like the complete opposite, a vision of what seems impossible. Cooperation and peace between nations and a presence of God among them all. We must learn how to live like the darkness is already over while engaging the reality of the darkness. God is not asking us, I don't believe, to pretend like we don't see the devastation around us. Choosing the way of peace involves entering into situations that are not peaceful, that are in the midst of darkness, and to join God's invitation that leads to a world of light and peace. How can you, how can we all, dream together with God and with our siblings in Christ this holiday season? Last week, Andrew mentioned the prophetic work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that's a primary example that Dr. Walter Brueggemann uses in his description of the prophetic imagination. Dr. King was someone who took his mission to proclaim the world as it should be. And he spoke things that we believed, I think at the time, were impossible. But people got on board and they chose to believe with God and with each other what was possible. I invite you to receive and to hear this Advent prayer, also from Walter Brueggemann. As the Holy Spirit moves among us 
and guides you to consider what choosing peace will look like for you in this next season of life. In our secret yearnings, we wait for your coming. And in our grinding despair, we doubt that you will. And in this privileged place, we are surrounded by witnesses who yearn more than do we, and by those who despair more deeply than do we. Look upon your church in this season of hope, which runs so quickly to fatigue, and in this season of yearning, which becomes so easily quarrelsome. Give us the grace and the impatience to wait for your coming to the bottom of our toes, to the edges of our fingertips. We do not want our several worlds to end. Come in your power, and come in your weakness, and in any case, and make all things new. Amen.